Well, you know, last, last week I mentioned a couple uh, important dates in history. Uh, this morning I'm going to mention a few more. Over the years, the U.S. Supreme Court has made a number of monumental decisions that significantly affected the morality of our nation, both for good and for bad. In 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education decided that the separation of black and white students in the public schools was unconstitutional. In 1973, we have Roe versus Wade, the decision that a woman has a so-called constitutional right to have an abortion during the first two trimesters of her pregnancy. In 2015, we have the Ogerfeld versus Hodges decision, a decree that would allow for same-sex marriages in all 50 states. So in other words, you have five unelected officials changing, at least they thought, changing the definition of marriage that stood since the creation of mankind. Marriage is not created by man, it's created by God, and only God has the right to define it. But you see, our society's departure from the biblical standards of morality is easily tracked when you look at and review the decisions of the Supreme Court for the last 50 to 60 years. There have been court trials in, in our lifetime that have captivated us. And in some cases, key evidence wasn't even admitted because they wanted to protect the rights of the perpetrator. We have in our judicial courts a fundamental protection right, and it's called the presumption of innocence. And in criminal law, what this actually means is that the state has the responsibility to prove the defendant is guilty, and the defendant does not need to have to prove his innocence. If someone is arrested, the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty. Now, this principle really wasn't invented by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. This is as old as Roman law. There's a document from the sixth century that discusses legal matters that can be traced back to the days of the apostles where the law says, proof lies on him who asserts not him who denies. Even the worst of criminals typically get this due process of law. Even the most diabolical murderers have this right. But it didn't work this way for Jesus Christ. The most significant trial in human history was the trial of Jesus Christ. What happened to him had eternal ramifications. But from a judicial point, 
This trial was a farce. Jesus Christ was the perfect, innocent Son of God. He never did anything wrong, never said anything wrong, never thought anything wrong, and yet he was arrested and hauled into a multi multiple courts, and prevailing legal decision of the court was he is guilty even though the facts don't support it. What people don't understand is that this terrible injustice was really the ultimate display of God's justice. God's judicial program was operating behind the scenes, and ultimately it would be this judicial farce in the Roman courts that would lead to the greatest judicial moment in the court of God. The death of Christ, carried out by this corrupt earthly court, would make it possible for God to justify sinners in his heavenly court. And as we come to this section of Scripture, this is what we will see. That Jesus Christ was illegally arrested, arrested falsely accused in a court or so-called religious political leaders uh, made this, and they, they condemned him to death. This was all a setup. It was all illegal. They wanted a conviction, and they wanted Christ dead. But what these people didn't realize is that God is the one setting this all up. Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, speaking of God's decree, says, For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. If you had had the privy to what was going on behind the scenes regarding the trial of Jesus, you would have been aware that this whole thing was a conspiracy. The religious leaders and the political leaders had conspired together to get rid of Jesus. But they were having great difficulty in doing so because of Jesus' immense popularity with the people. But then if you remember, there was a stunning development that took place. It took place within Jesus' own inner circle. One of his friends stepped forward to betray him to the authorities. Judas Iscariot volunteered to betray Christ. And so on Thursday evening, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a large band of soldiers. They managed to arrest Jesus and, and really without any trouble. There was a little brief resistance from Jesus' disciples, but it didn't really amount to much. Jesus was quickly taken into custody and then hastily tried and convicted. Actually, there were several trials that night. The speed of which that night's events unfolded suggests a great deal of planning and preparation on the part of the J Jewish council. Having gained the help from Judas to betray Jesus, 
they, they thought, we can't let them slip away. We've got them now. The pressure was that they were under to achieve their aim and to secure the death of Jesus was significant because now they had to get and recruit a mob. They had to recruit armed soldiers and dispatch them to arrest him and then bring him to the high priest. But the council of the Sanhedrin also had to be assembled. Witnesses needed to be found who were often paid, and then brought before the court to testify. So you have servants and guards and officers. They all had to be at their post. All this in spite of the evening of the most holy festival on the Jewish religious calendar. When all the families should have been together indoors eating. Now, to really understand what is, is happening here, we need to look at some history. And I'm going to borrow some of this from uh, John MacArthur's commentary, and sometimes it will be word for word. But if I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16, and we'll look at verses 18 through 20. Deuteronomy 16. And here, starting with verse 18, it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And so you need to understand that these Jewish people, they took this to heart. They had the best justice system in the world because it was set up by the most just God, uh, just judge, the righteous judge, who is God himself. And so what you have is every town that held over 120 men who were heads of their household would have a council and that council was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin would provide legal governance to the commit, uh, community that it represented. The Sanhedrin was made up of 23 men who were sometimes men uh, in leadership at the local synagogue. But you see, 23 men meant it was an odd number, which meant when votes were taken, there couldn't be any ties. The Supreme Court of Israel was in Jerusalem, and it met daily in the court uh, or in the temple, except on Sabbath days and holidays. This Supreme Court was called the Great Sanhedrin. It was made up of 71 members, including high priests. 
and the high priest would preside over the council. The rest of the members were made up of chief priests, elders, and scribes. And so this group was the most powerful legislative and judicial body in all of Israel. They wrote the laws and enforced them. This ruling group of Jews had become very corrupt in Jesus' day. Rome was very careful who they picked to allow to oversee this group. They picked someone who would serve their interests. And as a result, the person in the, high, the position of high priest had the power of Rome at their disposal. If they played their cards right, they could do what they wanted. A person who was accused of a crime had several protections to avoid being unjustly convicted of that crime. For one thing, the trial had to be a public trial. It had to be held in daylight. There had to be ample chance for the accused to make defense. And all the charges would be dropped if they weren't supported by at least two witnesses. You see, perjury was a very big deal. The law applied uh, the prescription found in Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 21, which states that any false witnesses, known to be false witnesses, would end up with the same penalty for the crime that the person was accused of. So you had a lot of these people, they weren't going to come forth unless they saw something happen with their own eyes. And then you needed two. Otherwise, if they were found to be false, if they accused someone of murder and that person was, was found innocent, they would be put to death. Just think if that was in place nowadays, especially in this country. All these frivolous lawsuits that are happen, happening would be done. So any false witnesses in Christ's trial should have been immediately charged with the crime of blasphemy. And that's the charge they were trying to bring upon Christ. They, they should have been put to death, if anyone. And also, the law required when enacting the death penalty that the witness cast the first stones. They had to own their part that they were playing in the death of this man or woman. And also, Jewish law required a full day to elapse between the verdict and the death sentence so that during that time, court members could fast and seriously think about what they were doing. They were ready to take a person's life. They had to take that very seriously. And so this also allowed further testimony if there was any available. So trials were never held on a day before a feast. So you can see that this system of law was a good system with great concern for justice. Problem is, good rules are just good rules. They can't make people submit to them or live by them. And so, 
as we're going through this text, I, I hope you keep your eye on how often and how knowingly the leadership were simply doing things illegal. These actions were not just immoral, they were also flagrantly illegal. It's a possibility that a person could have ignored everything about Christ and who he was, but they could not have ignored the laws that they were flagrantly violating in the lynching of Christ. So with that as our, as our opening, go ahead and turn to our text. It's found in Mark chapter 14, and we'll look at verses 53 through 65. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Starting with verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But even their but even then did their testimony, but not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is, is it with these men testifying against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the chief priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, you may recall that Jesus had just been in the garden up on the Mount of Olives. Judas led this army up there, up the mountain a couple hundred feet and a couple miles away from Jerusalem, all to get him. When they're up there, they forcibly grabbed him. 
They manhandled him. And they hauled him down the mountain for his first trial. And according to verse 53, they led Jesus away to appear before the high priest, the chief priest, and the elders and the scribes. Folks, these are all big, phony religious pretenders. Now, Mark doesn't describe all the events that took place. For example, we know that Jesus has a preliminary hearing before Annas, before uh, uh, Caiaphas, who was actually really the high priest. Mark picks up the narrative emphasizing just one high priest. Even though it's past midnight, it's Friday, all these leaders had no problem rushing into a meeting. I mean, how many would you think would show up past midnight these days? That's how much they wanted him. They wanted him dead. So they convened this all at night. And as we saw in the, the introduction, that's actually against the law. This is a mock trial being held in the middle of the night. And Jewish law said trials were be, to be held during the day. These leaders were waiting for him. The team of religious elite in Jerusalem were waiting for him. And it was obviously a conspiracy. They were expecting to haul Christ into their courts, into this kangaroo court that had no real resemblance of a true court of Israel. They totally disregarded all the rules. Mark doesn't name the high priest, but we know it was Caiaphas who held the office from 18, AD 36, uh, from a AD 18 to AD 36. And Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, the former high priest who had been removed from the office in AD 15. Even though Annas was the retired high priest, he was still involving himself in religious things and apparently carried quite a bit of weight over these religious leaders. And so Jesus is hauled into court before these high priests and ruling priests who controlled the religious life and before the elders who controlled the people and the scribes who were the biblical scholars. So here you have Jesus. He is against all of them. And they are against him. They all came together to kill him. Christ has no attorney, no legal representation. It's just Jesus against all of them. And if you look at verse 54, it says, But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Here we see Peter had followed the mob at a distance and he was sitting in the courtyard and warming himself. Now, the reason why Mark adds this is because if you remember, Peter is telling Mark all of this. 
and he did this so that so that it was a prelude to him denying Christ three times. Remember that in verse 50, it says that all the disciples fled when Jesus was arrested. So what must have happened is, is Peter fled too, but then he circled back and then followed at a distance. And he had enough nerve to actually go into the courtyard of the high priest. Now the courtyard would have been an open courtyard outside the residence of the high priest. And so Peter's sitting there warming himself by the fire. Actually, he's playing with fire. Because you remember, he just pulled out a sword and cut off Melchus's ear. And so he's sitting with all of them as if nothing really happened. But then, after he cut off Melchus's ear, he... he runs, but you can sort of get a glimpse of the turmoil of Peter's soul. He loves Jesus, so he's drawn to him, but he's also fickle and fearful. And so the most he can do is to bring himself to follow at a distance. But what an ironic scene. Peter's wandering incognito into the courtyard of the high priest, sitting with the guards. It's just crazy. He's sitting there amongst the guards. He's passive, he's silent, he's scared, he's trying to stay warm. Bible commentator James Edwards writes, Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. How many of us have the strength of Samson sitting in this sanctuary? But then we're at safe observance when we're out in the public. We know how this story ends with Peter being restored. And then after that, he's a powerful witness for Jesus for the rest of his life. But we also know that this, the story doesn't always end that way. So that's a cautionary tale for all of us. When we are distant from Jesus keeping one eye on him while standing next to those who don't care less about him is a dangerous place. It's a warning signal. And we shouldn't ignore it. We should understand that we can't have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. We have to have both feet in the temple of the Lord. And so continuing with verse 55, we read, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but none, but found none. That word sought is the Greek word zetao. And every time that Mark uses it, he uses it in a negative context. 
He uses it in a context to imply evil attempt, an evil seeking, or an evil plotting. You see, a guilty verdict has already been determined beforehand by Caiaphas. Mark doesn't say anything about that, but John does. John chapter 11. If you would please turn there. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 53. John chapter 11, starting with verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. And then one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. You see, this isn't a legal trial. This is a railroad job. All of the religious leaders called the Sanhedrin or the council, they were all in the middle of this nighttime charade trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus Christ. They kept trying to obtain some form of testimony that would enable them to kill him, but apparently they had brought in some false witnesses to testify against Christ. They were not finding anything that would be reason to execute him. There was not one bit of evidence against him. And we should note that the real trial takes place before Pilate. The Jews, you see, didn't have any really any authority to execute people. So what the Sanhedrin would do is sort of uh, do this. Their trial was more of a preliminary investigation you know, we might call it a grand jury. Um, But that was to see if they could find anything in order to prosecute him and take that case before Pilate. And now throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen the official opposition to, to Jesus, that they objected to his views on the Sabbath observance. They, they objected to the claim of him to forgive sins, 
And not only that, he was keeping company with sinners. Jesus had been accused of being in a league with the devil, ignoring purity laws. But you see, none of these were sufficient to invoke the death penalty, at least not before the, the Roman governor. So his claim to forgive sins would have been blasphemous to the Jews, but the Romans wouldn't have cared. They needed testimony that would demonstrate that Jesus is dangerous to them, that he threatened them. So the Jews are trying to say he's threatening Jewish society and in turn, that should be a concern for the Romans because he was going to destroy this temple. And to speak about the temple, to destroy it, was to speak against the law of Moses. And to speak about against the law of Moses was actually to speak against God himself. But the high priest probably knew that that wasn't enough, especially under Roman rule. They needed something else. But you see, they ran into another problem. And we see that in verse 56. It says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. The testimonies would have been from witnesses on the street that the council members should have vetted. And this is the same crew that Peter must have snuck in with all these people from the street. Peter must have just found his way. But Mark says their testimonies didn't agree. You see, this was not only a trial of conspiracy. This was also a trial of incompetency. They can't find anything wrong with Jesus. And the reality is that this isn't a fact-finding commission unless you want to find the fact that Jesus was truly innocent and they knew that. The purpose of this was not to adjudicate cases which God had established this court for, but it was to prosecute the defendant. There wasn't any justice found in these councilmen. They were evil prosecutors, hand-picked witnesses, and they were trying to provide testimony in order to make Jesus look guilty. And we, we know as we read in our Bibles, Christ didn't look guilty at all. They're the ones that look guilty. The verdict had been decided beforehand. They just had to put the cart before the horse. So they're bringing Jesus before the council member. They're seeking testimony, as verses 55 and 56 tell us. It was just an attempt to formulate a justifiable legal charge before the just waiting of evidence. You stop and think about this for a moment. You haven't forgot the fact that they're talking about Jesus. 
the judge of the universe, being put on trial by fallible men. By being judged by evil men with wrong, evil motives. That's just unthinkable. But they're hitting a wall. So finally, they seize upon an opportunity from a couple witnesses. 57 and 58 say, Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. We get a little bit more in Matthew 26, so I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 61. Matthew 26, starting with verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought, sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. There were many people giving false witness. And remember, these people were probably paid off and probably paid well. Matthew says, at least, at last, two came forward. In other words, these were probably the last two witnesses that they had. They're trying to somewhat follow the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 19, which says only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established? I want you to turn, if you would, to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. You're going to hear something that is so, so twisted in this, the end of this, and I hope you understand what the true meaning is by the time we get done reading it. Starting with verse 15. This is about church discipline. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you 
like a heathen and a tax collector. Listen to what it says. When you have two or three witnesses, assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if you to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Are you making the connection here? This is judicial, folks. Now let's go to the, the popular verse. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This isn't where we have a church where two or three are gathered. This is judicial, where you are bringing charge against someone. You must have two or three witnesses against that person. And when you end up going through and finding evidence of that charge, assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. God agrees. So back to our text. A previous testimony didn't agree. And so they found two witnesses to make up some trumped-up allegation twisting Jesus' words about a statement he made about the temple. And actually, if we look at that, statement to which they're referring, he was referring to his own body. Please turn to John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. John chapter 2, starting with verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And so it becomes obvious that Jesus is talking about the fact that he would be killed, and three days later he would come back to life. It is significant to note that he made these statements after the first time he, changed, he chased the money changers out of the temple and called them a den of thieves. The Jewish response to what Jesus said, what gives you this right? Let's see you show some sign that you are really the Messiah. Jesus said, I'll tell you, there's a sign coming. You will kill me, and three days later I will come back from the dead. So many 
of these false witnesses had been there to hear this, to see this. But what they do is they twist the facts and they try to make it mean that he was going to destroy the temple. They're giving it their best shot. And we know that Jesus' statement in John 2 is about the temple um, fulfillment found in 2 Samuel 7, 7.13 that David said he would have a son and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. His physical body wasn't made with hands and it would be raised. You see, he would, be, he would build another temple the church on which Jesus is the foundation and cornerstone. The Bible uses both of these expressions to describe Jesus as the foundation or cornerstone of the church. Paul tells us that we come into God's presence. We come through the temple doors of Christ because of our, un our union with him. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 that you are God's building. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? They took Jesus' words completely out of context in order to make it look to the Romans as if Jesus was going to incite political insurrection. Now they had something. But according to verse 59, it says, but not even uh, then did their testimony agree. You see, there was no consistency in their allegations. Even in this, they couldn't get their story straight. It must have been frustrating because everyone here wants to convict, convict Christ. And yet, their chief witnesses just keep trapping themselves with their inconsistencies. Mark stresses the fact that there was no consistency in their testimony. They're just tripping over themselves. MacArthur says, and by the way, no one was seeking witnesses in defense of Jesus. In John 18, 19 through 21, it says the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Jen MacArthur says, you see, they didn't want anyone who would defend Jesus. They wanted him dead in ours. And by the way, the reality of this, 
has been a stigma for the Jewish people. In the early century, there was this strange medieval Jewish fable that tries to rewrite history saying that the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin made proclamation for a period of 40 days trying to find witness to affirm the innocence of Jesus and found none. That's revisionist history. And that's to get them off the hook of their uh, illegalities, end quote. And so, continuing with verse 60, it says, And then the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Here, the high priest Caiaphas realizes testimony is false. It's not cutting it. So he decides to jump into the situation, see if he can get something on him. And Jesus is standing there saying nothing. Caiaphas is at wit's end. And so he says to Jesus, you're not going to answer? These people are testifying against you. What do you have to say about all these allegations? The thing we see in this scene is Jesus is silent. And this is surprising to us. It's really shocking to see how Jesus reacts to all this. Because everything in ourselves cries out for Jesus to defend himself. Our sense of justice demands that someone tell tell the truth so that it would be known. This shows another way in which the trial is unjust. They're not seeking testimony that would show Jesus was innocent. They're seeking testimony just to show he's guilty. And so Jesus is on his own. Even though he has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. He has power to dominate his enemies. And yet he remains silent in the face of these false accusations. Verse 61 reads, But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Up to this point, Christ didn't say anything. He didn't defend himself. He didn't protest. In this, we should see Jesus' unswerving commitment to the glorious plan of redemption. We should see his submission to the Father's will. We should see his tremendous love for you and I. He was falsely accused, he's not guilty. But he submitted himself to this injustice so that he might sever the root of injustice in the world. He allowed himself to be mistreated by sinful men so that he might die in the place of sinful men. He did all this for the glory of God and our salvation. He's the suffering servant that is talked about in Isaiah 53, 7. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This passage of Scripture is what the Ethiopian eunuch was, was reading. Remember that on when we had the baptisms? I read about that. He's sitting there reading Isaiah 53, and what happens is the Lord provides Philip to run up and tell this man the good news of Jesus Christ. He told him the gospel from this passage. This is our Savior. He's the innocent one who is falsely accused. And yet he was silent. He did not open his mouth. He accepted this injustice that was done for him, uh, to him so that he might atone for the unjust men and women like you and I. It's the best news in the world. And I hope that you see this. Even though Jesus was silent about the accusations, he wasn't silent about one thing. Second part of verse 61. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Matthew 26, 63 tells us the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You see, high priest, he's going back to this, this law of God. You're under oath. I don't think Jesus needed to be under oath to tell who he was. But this guy, he was saying, before you answer this question, remember, you are under oath. He was trying to look pious, upholding the word of God, the law of God, all trying to set Jesus up. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Or as our text says, are you the son of the blessed? That word, blessed, in the Greek is the word eulogatos. They use this word in order to refrain from using God's personal name. You notice that word, blessed, is capitalized? It means, are you the son of God? There was nothing in his looks to suggest he was the glorious son of God. You couldn't see it physically in him. But had they thought about where he was born and the miracles he performed, they should have recognized his identity. So Caiaphas asked him straight up in verse 62. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
You see, Jesus has been saying through his deeds, through his stories, his miracles, that, yeah, I am the one. He is the son of David, the son of God. And he owns, he owns that. And he declares that. Sometimes you hear Muslims criticize the Bible saying, Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. That isn't true. It's right here. And here, this is great. Jesus is under oath in the highest court of Judaism. He's asked straightforward, good, straight language, asked the state of his identity, the state of his claim. And he does. This couldn't be any clearer. His response is powerful. Doesn't have any room for doubt. He speaks the word of God and confirms that his true identity. I am. In the Greek, that's ego am I. The name which God revealed himself to Moses. God told Moses, I am that I am. Do you know what that means? I define myself by myself. And only by myself, because nothing else can define who I am. I am that I am. And here, Jesus proclaims his identity by combining two scriptures. Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13. One ten one says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Daniel 7.13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And now, upon hearing this, the high priest responded, in verses 63 and 64 of our text, it says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. My goodness. This is the height of hypocrisy. The high priest tore his clothes. This normally wasn't done except in great grief. But as religion often does, he shows great indig indignation, play acting about the things of God. So he rips off his clothes concerning this claim that Christ was part of the Godhead. If this trial had any sincerity in it at all, you might have a shred of compassion. <clears throat> but it has none. This whole trial is a sham. Annas had Christ's death in mind as soon as Christ stopped his prophet machine in the temple courts. And Christ interfered sealed his doom when he interfered with the money changers. Caiaphas 
he knows what side the bread or the bread is buttered. And so he's going to carry out Annas's uh, wishes on this. I'll tell you what, everyone, every one of these people knew that they were God, violating God's law. Everything they did to Christ, they knew better. Every one of them. They knew that they were responsible to carry out legal proceedings legally. They had no right to do what they did, but they did it anyway. But wait a minute. Wouldn't the proper next step have been to inquire into the truth of the claim that Jesus made? After all, this was supposed to be a court trial. Jesus was claiming to be the anointed one who was, who was God. The Sanhedrin should have asked Christ to prove his claim. And Jesus could have pointed out some of the following. The first thing is, according to Scripture, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was to be born of a virgin. Jesus was born of Mary, who was a virgin at the time of his birth. The Messiah was to be of the lineage of David. Jesus was a descendant of the King David, both from Joseph's side and Mary's side. And the Messiah was to do many great works. Jesus had performed the miracles that were prophesied. And regarding his claim to be God, Jesus could have said there's Old Testament passages to precisely the kind of unique son of God that Jesus claimed to be. Many Old Testament passages show that God appeared among men, which Jesus did. The Old Testament talks about God becoming flesh, which he was. We would have to ask just exactly where is this blasphemy they're talking about? What Jesus says is only blasphemous if it's not true. But if he is the Messiah, and if he is the Son of God, and if he is everything that he says he is, there isn't any blasphemy here. The fact is that Jesus is the Messiah. Who is God? The Jewish leaders thought that Jesus was committing blasphemy when he was simply telling them the truth. He really was the Messiah who is also God in the flesh. And then this last segment of our text is their complete rejection of Jesus. At Jesus' statement, this show of the high priest tearing his garments and lamenting, acting like he's all appalled at the claim of Jesus, saying he deserved death because of this blasphemy. Look in verse 65. This is almost hard to read. It's humiliating abuse. 
It says, then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, and say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. This is exactly what Jesus had predicted in chapter 10. If you would turn to chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. Verses 33 and 34. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. This is also what's described long before in Isaiah 50, where it says of the Lord's servant, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Jesus Christ indeed is the suffering servant. And he stoops to endure this ridicule. He does so to magnify the grace of God by standing in the place of sinners. And the irony of what's happening here should highlight for us the innocence of Christ and the tremendous sacrifice of Christ. We may all be appalled at what went on in this sham trial. And we should be appalled by it. But we also have to remember that we would have done the same things. We are the ones who have rejected Jesus Christ. Our disregard for him and ignoring him is just as bad as what these folks did. All until that day when Christ, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us. We were deeply opposed to Jesus because our sinful nature was all about itself. We were proud, we were spiritually blind, and therefore we would do whatever we wanted to in order to keep Jesus out of our lives. Natural man opposes the power and authority of Jesus Christ and we all reject him. Because we don't want him as king, we want to be king. What we should read in this account is that we have all done that. We all deserve the wrath of God. And the second thing that we should understand is that Jesus was rejected for us. He experienced the rejection. He experienced the rejection that we deserve. He endured it so that we don't have to. And the second way that we should see ourselves in the story is everything that happened to Jesus is what should have happened to us in our wickedness. That Jesus was completely innocent. He didn't deserve any of this rejection in the slightest, but we do. But he stood in our place. So we should read this and marvel at what Jesus did. 
We should rejoice in the forgiveness that we have through his blood. We should leap to joy that in the courtroom of God, we will not stand rejected, but accepted. Even though we deserve to be cast out, we have received the reward on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And scripture set forth Jesus' steadfastness in all of the suffering and rejection as an example for us. That those who are uh, repentant of sin and trusting in Christ, we can have assurance that we will not be rejected in the courtroom of God. But it should also show us that we have no assurance that we will avoid the rejection of man in his courtroom. Matter of fact, we should expect the rejection and the ridicule of the world. If you'd please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 20 and 23. 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting with verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to do this, you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus was steadfast in his suffering, and we can too by God's grace. When we are wrong, wrongly accused, when we are rejected and ridiculed, we can continue to trust ourselves to the just and loving judge. I hope that you'll meditate on this. This is a rich portion of Scripture. This is there to nourish our souls, to deepen our love for our Savior to give us more confidence and find that we should find, find strength in him. It should also motivate us to tell those who are perishing the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We profess with our mouth and rejoice in our hearts, that you indeed are who you say you are, that you are the Son of Man, you are the Messiah, 
that you are the one who has authority to forgive sins. You have the authority to reign and rule with perfection and justice and righteousness. We are really overwhelmed by the powerful testimony of Jesus before his accusers. His dignity, his silence, his trust in you, his Father. His willingness to go to the cross and his unwillingness to say anything that might appear blasphemous on the one hand and always telling the truth and always willing to suffer according to your will. He knew this was the plan of redemption for sinners. You planned all of this so that you might fully give yourself to your people, the people that you redeemed with the blood of your only son. We thank you for this. We praise you for this. And we pray all of this in our Lord and Savior's most precious, glorious, and majestic name. Amen.